Hey gang, it's Harold. I'm podcasting to you from the bunker. In the interest of distracting myself and my gaming friends, I'm reaching out to some interesting people to ask them what they're doing game-wise. With such a big time dividend, I want to hear what they're playing, designing, or thinking about. No CNN, no CNBC, just games. My production obsession will have to be put on hold as I'm most interested in communicating with you rapidly with some interesting content. This podcast documents a discussion I had with both Volko Runka and Morgan Guillaume-Rete on combat systems in conflict games. Morgan and Volko, welcome to the podcast. We've discussed, uh, the three of us for a long time, combat systems for historical simulations. After uh, some back and forth We've decided to take that discussion to the podcast, so that's where we find ourselves. Thinking about where to start and to try to go from this, uh, to go with this in a systematic way, or at least uh, frame it, I'm going to ask a question, and maybe Volko, you can start with a response, which is always thoughtful, as is Morgan's. But um, <laughs> the the question then is, when we talk about combat systems, how do we fold matters of scale and time into a discussion of combat systems because scale and time have significant impact on how you think about these things? So do you, do you mean scale and time on the, on the battlefield or do you mean what is the context in scale and time of the battle you're representing well i would take a step back and i would say in the context of the game that we're playing or the simulation okay yeah in other words in other words if you have a, a, a tactical game and it's portraying an engagement that is probably just a tiny part of a much larger affair we would call a battle there's a combat system in that game and if you have a grand strategic you know global scale game about let's say colonial expansion there's probably a combat system in it um as well and then lots of stuff in between so the, the, so that's so you're saying what is there is there a kind of a general response to how do you account for that that setting of the Combat is that is that the question? Yeah, I, I think that's the question, but I would also suggest that that the three of us have yeah. focused mainly on either operational or strategic level games. That's true. So so I don't you know I think we can leave behind kind of the the tactical uh, maybe even operational game and focus more on the broader. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, and so. And so, you know, either, either, well, let me give you two choices. One, restate the question, or two, now that I've restated the question myself, Morgan can answer it. <laughs> well, I'm tired of taking questions. I'm supposed to be giving <laughs> questions. So, Morgan, what do you think? Well, I, I would say, um, obviously, the, the general scale of the game, so the the historical model that we're trying to uh, put together obviously is a big is a big factor. Um, but then the nature of the kind of fighting that took place during that, typically during that sort of um, time frame is important. I mean, I would make a difference, for instance, um, just drawing from my own um, games between something like uh, Pendragon, which obviously covers a very long period, but sees a lot of small-scale fighting, you know, various raids, ambushes, with maybe a couple big battles thrown in, and a game like Hubris, where, which covers a shorter period to some extent, but tends to resolve into a few major events, like, you know, one big battle which is going to decide the entire war, Right. Um, so you have to apply a different approach based on the nature of conflict and just how decisive and how uh, frequent, I would say, battles were. Yeah, I, and I think that's that I have this exact same thought, and I guess my examples from my um, designs would be the systems in, in Wilderness War, um, 
the systems in the modern guerrilla warfare settings of coin series uh, and and if I'm allowed to go a little bit operational, the, the Levian campaign series now, uh, the, I think the systems are, there may be echoes, I, I suppose, but they're each purpose made to get at, you know, what are the, what are the nature of decisions that lead to combat? What are the purposes of combat? And how does it tend to play out and then affect the rest of the situation as I looked at the history, just as I think, Morgan, when you looked at the history of the fall of Roman Britain, or you look at the history of the, you know, Hellenistic um, kingdoms fighting each other, you know, you're going to see different ways that combat comes about for different purposes. There are general, certainly there are general uh, similarities but similarities, seductive, differences, decisive. It's the differences I would suspect you would want to bring out in the combat systems of the respective games. And so each one, while you're drawing from a toolbox of mechanics from playing other games and, and designing other games and so forth, you are innovating and changing them in particular ways and coming up with new answers to problems that hadn't been posed in other games in order to convey to the players, here here's... Here's how combat played within the larger, the larger system of warfare in this particular setting. Right, and and it's also a matter, I would say, of player experience. If if say you have a number of large number of battles going over the course of play, um, first thing is you don't want each battle to take too long because then it will just a slow down play to a point which is probably not fun. Um, and, and at the same time, it's acceptable that each battle may be solved maybe with, you know, one major die roll, taking into account factoring in a number of different things, obviously, but because that battle may not be that crucial in itself. I mean, it's part of a larger game of positioning yourself and building your positions and etc. etc. where if you know that there will be few battles and they will have a major impact. I know that as a player myself, I'm very frustrated if it all boils down to one single die roll on which I have very few, you know, meaningful decisions or, or grip. And then, you know, I roll bad and I lose. And, and that's very frustrating. Yeah, and, and so that's a great illustration, I think, Harold, of the, the concept we were discussing in, in the earlier, um, you know, podcast that we did of simplification and the and the how key these simplification decisions are by the designer. In other words, if it's a matter of well, there's there are a lot of little battles, but I'm not going to have a player fight out 300 little battles that occur in this guerrilla war over the course of a year. I'm going to boil those down. I'm going to simplify them into uh, a few resolutions that are not given more time and detail and rules burden then they are worth for the outcome uh, that they have for the course of the story, for the course of the, the performance of the system. On the other hand, if you have uh, armies maneuvering against each other that leads up to a climactic engagement, then to just have that engagement be a single die roll is not, I mean, is not sufficient. We want to actually spend more time and effort and rules burden in digging into that, that particular engagement. And these are not, um, you know, these are not prescribed design choices. This is a matter of art. This is a what, what is the, what play experience do I like? And what do I think players will find fun? And what do I think will convey this particular time and place to players forcefully enough to, to, for them to suspend their disbelief, to transport them there? And these are all, you know, these are all intuitive gut kind of calls and we, we tinker it back and forth and we don't always get it right for all players. I know, for example, um, the really cool review that um, Bruce Garik wrote of Nevsky, you know, his sounded like he loved the operational lead up to the battles, but he wanted to see more fidelity in the resolution of the battles than what I put in. Um, I'm very, I'm very happy. If anything, there's, there's more than I might have done because I'm focused at the operational level, but that just shows you that different players are looking for different things. 
And so every designer is going to bring that art, you know, really the designer's tastes, if you will, to how those simplification decisions are made. And those simplification decisions are the, the key design decisions for, for, for combat systems or for, for any other aspect of a sim. I would also say that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the resolution of the battle and the simplification of that and the choices made. But also when you think about a game like Pendragon that, that covers such a, a, a massive time frame in the, in the context of a turn or a card or a campaign, then, you know, I think we, we, we have to think a lot about whether we're simulating one battle or a series of battles um, or, a, a, an, you know, 100, 100 years of, uh, of battles, right? I think that that's the other simplification that's made. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And um, I know you dis- you two discussed a little bit about that. I mean, uh, and I'm sure Volko knows that very well because, I mean, he was deeply involved in, <laughs> in Pendragon. Uh, but, but obviously, I mean, Pendragon, to a large extent, is more campaign-focused than battle-focused. Even though, as I mentioned, maybe a campaign will, in the end, and, and it really depends on how it, it pans out, uh, it might, in the end, be resolved in one big battle. And this is where you've got this sort of tactical feel and the name of the steps and that sort of thing. But, but actually, you should see, let's say, um, if the barbarians manage to evade, you know, if you've got a party of raiders which managed to evade the, the dukes, that would represent a fairly long protracted uh, cat and mouse thing where ultimately the barbarians managed to avoid being caught uh, and crushed as the, um, say, the dukes would uh, would have hoped for. So that would more de- depict a long um, clash where if you have, like, say, a lot of uh, warbands and they use shield wall and they go, uh, you know, uh, hand-to-hand against uh, cavalry and, and comitates, that probably means that this boiled down in the end to one big battle. So we're somewhere in between. But uh, yes, I mean, Pendragon, due to the focus, due to um, the length of the game, as you mentioned, I mean, is more campaign-driven. I mean, you might say any coin game is that way. I mean, Falling Sky, same thing. I mean, it's a, it's, yes. a, it's most campaign, even if they are shorter, maybe even the Pendragon campaign, still it's it's a similar scale. Yeah. So, and this is, this is a, it's a bit of a, um, it's a bit, bit of a, uh, what can I say, an illusion, a trick yeah. um, in how we scale these things, purposely, I think. Yes. And it's to give you the, 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 the feeling and also the, the simulation, the course and outcome of a lot of time and a lot of small actions going by um, that sometimes resolve in one afternoon in real life and sometimes don't. And we're simulating all of that with our simplified combat system. And I want to go, I mean, departing from our games, one thing this makes me think of, I did I, I did similar things absolutely with Andrew and Falling Sky. Um, uh, and there are similar things going on in Wilderness War, especially with the raiding of compression of, of this kind of, um, you know, taking lots of things and boiling them down to, to one thing that still tries to convey the, the dynamics and therefore the feeling of the each one thing. It's a kind of a fractal, if you mm-hmm. know what like fractals are. It's kind of like a fractal where the, the battle that we're playing out with our pieces might represent several engagements, and each of those engagements in real life represents the one thing we're, and we're just compressing them together to have a good play experience and a similar effect. So Richard Richard Berg, um, so the great Richard Berg in War Galley, I was a play tester on War Galley, and on War Galley, there had already been um, a number of games out there that have to do with um, uh, uh, ancient galley battles, triremes and biremes and queen kareems and the like. And what he wanted to do with War Galley is he wanted to have something that was more playable, more easy, more accessible, that would represent famous um, War Galley battles, but do so in a game, you know, that you could play in an afternoon, perhaps. And one way that he achieved that was that if a, if a historical galley battle was thought to have 
300 ships on each side, let's say, he might represent that with 40 pieces on each side. And the pieces would be representative. You'd have whatever the kinds of ships were. And if there was a coastline involved or an attack or defense situation involved, that would obviously be in the scenario as well. But each piece, while each piece might represent five or 10 or 20 actual galleys, each piece actually didn't behave like a flotilla or like a squadron. Each piece behaved like an individual galley. It covered two hexes, it maneuvered, it did a, it did a ram, um, it would, it would, it would give you really very much the sense that what you were controlling with that piece was a single ship. Mm-hmm. And so that really got me thinking for a long time, is that, is that valid? In other words, if you took 300 ships and lined them up against each other and fought a battle against an enemy's 300 ships, or you took 40, right? I mean, it looks different in some ways, but the dynamics of it are the same in other ways. So it's a simplification decision that Richard Berg very consciously made to achieve his, his purpose in terms of play experience and simulation both. And, and then he stated it, he tells you that. I mean, it's not a secret, right? It's, a, it's an illusion in a way that you're fighting Salamis or whatever it is because the number of ships are actually far smaller that are on your table. And yet, um, and yet we can defend it as a valid model because that compression still leads to the same dynamics in the channel or the same interaction between light ships on one side and a few a smaller number of heavier ships on the other side and so forth. Yeah, but yeah. then the, um, when we apply this to, to our games, I mean, it's probably uh, less true because, I mean, the, the reduction is much, much steeper. I mean, uh, uh, you take the con game, I mean, typically you're going to what? to have what, maybe up to, I don't know, 10, 12 total pieces in a battle where, you know, even the smallest uh, numbers in uh, Dark Ages battle would still have a couple thousands or maybe at least a couple hundreds on each side. So I'm not sure that it's, it's but, but yes, I mean, I see your point. It's all, a lot of things yeah. have illusions and simplifications, yeah. Yeah, so but, let me make the comparison. I wasn't even so much thinking about pieces as now number of engagements and compression over time. So in right. Wilderness War, you have, it's both, right? With the Raiders, for example, in Wilderness War, which is the French Indian War, okay? Mm-hmm. And you've got, I don't know, let's say you're the French, you've got maybe a half dozen Indian units at any given time, that each one's a piece, right? Yeah, yeah. And that piece goes, does a raid, and it and you, you know, gets itself into position, you roll a die, maybe it goes home with some some good stuff, maybe it doesn't. And you're doing, so you're doing what? Maybe a couple dozen raids over the course of a game? The real French and Indian War, there were more than a couple. I mean, you know, there are war bands, right? But many more than that. But I didn't want to have to have you, sure. um, right, roll out every little band of twenty Indians. And I also, and I also, but I also wanted to give you the feeling of sending war bands of 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 uh, of the Indians at the enemy and conducting individual raids or rangers or whatever. And so it's a it's a you know it's a kind of a a, a trick to. To, to have it seem like you're running the raids of the full war, each individual thing you're real, is really representing many small things that represent, that, that look like the right. larger thing that you're doing. Yes. And similarly, uh, in the sweep and, and, and um, guerrilla operations of the modern coin series, presumably, you know, over the, over the course of Vietnam, there were many, many, many more sweeps than the US player will ever do. Right. And we're representing. But but we still want to give you the feeling of, you know, moving your troops in by by helicopter, beating the bushes for the VC and seeing if you can nail them before they before they get away or cover up. Yeah. But but for instance, if we stay in the same theater of war of, you know, northwestern America and, and Harold, I mean, you're probably the best to explain that. I mean, you are in liberty or death. Uh, you will have a number of battles which will be played out in a, in a typical, you know, full-length game, but the number of battles will be much less than the actual number of battles which were actually fought during the uh, War of Independence. Um, on the other hand, if your game in your game on uh, campaigns of 1777, uh, I would expect that every single engagement 
maybe not skirmishes, but engagement is actually thought out on the map, right? Yeah, I, I think it's true, um, Morgan. And I think, you know, v- very different scales and times, right? Campaign right. of 77 is a year and, um, and, and, you know, roughly eight turns. And then, um, you know, uh, if you look at uh, Liberty or Death, you have the course of four years, maybe six years, maybe two years, depending on what you play. But, yeah. <clears throat> you know, roughly 10 cards per year, depending uh, on the cycle. So, so yes, I, I think uh, very clearly Liberty or Death represents a combination of, of hit and miss and you know one of the things that that I I don't I don't want to I don't want to uh, derail us here and talk about it, but you know just because two armies are in the same space doesn't mean they fight, right? For a host of reasons, right? <clears throat> so so uh, you know so much of that happened in the American Revolution and Washington, known as the master of retreat. We didn't learn it in our high school history class, but that was the reality that Washington survived the first three years of the war by just making sure he didn't have to fight the British. Death Star. And, um, and and so, you know, all of that means that there were a bunch of little fights and a lot of running. And and it's interesting, too, that coin, coin creates a bit of a conundrum. Uh, the, the, the system, coin system, creates a conundrum for the designer at that point because, you know, there can become a very natural cat and mouse game that starts where one player moves into a space and the other player just moves out. And so I had to, at some point, get comfortable with that cat and mouse as reflective of what happens in the American Revolution and, and in, those, in, the, in those conflicts during the Age of Reason that, that made it work. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you move into a space in battle and, and sometimes the card events or the card cycle allows you to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, who goes first and which side goes first. Uh, sometimes the French may make a big move into a space and then the Patriots follow it with a smashing attack. You know, the one-two punch that I talk about in the designer notes, and that, that gets away from the cat and mouse problem, but, you know, it was later in the war. And um, so I was happy with that, but it took me some time to reconcile the cat and mouse game um, to the yes. of reason. <laughs> Yeah, but I would say that works because of the focus of the coin series, just like, you know, it's, and it's not only the American uh, War of Independence. I mean, throughout this history, um, usually war leaders have been able to fight when they wanted to. Uh, Now, that only works as a game or as a simulation because there are consequences to withdrawing. Um, If you are liberty or less, I mean, if you don't want to fight, uh, then you let uh, you know your enemy do operations which are going to impact you know, your support and things like that. Um, the same things happen in Falling Sky. I mean, if the Western uh, Gitorix withdraws, then the Romans can start you know, subduing the tribes. Um, and and that's I think that's the reason it works. I mean, in Hubris, uh, it's very easy to withdraw. Basically, there is no role. I mean, if you don't want to fight and you have a, a satrapy behind you where you can withdraw, you you withdraw automatically, so you don't fight. But then you leave your enemy the opportunity to undertake sieges and subjugations, and uh, the risk is that you lose the satrapy for forever. So it's it works because the scale builds, you know, the consequences of your withdrawals. Where maybe at a more operational or grand tactical level, it would make for simply frustration. And I, that's and that's why, going back to um, what I mentioned earlier, one of the things, one of the many things that the combat system ought to uh, give players ideas about is, is why the battles are happening, why the battles are being fought. Um, and, and the more you back out to operational, to strategic, to grand strategic, um, the more the simulation should be showing you battles aren't just in the, in the, in the nature of things. Battles uh, happen because of decisions people make to have battles and, mm-hmm. and that they're done presumably not just to kill the people in the other army, but for larger consequences of a, of a victory Absolutely. And, or, they're, or they're forced by larger calculations. And yes. so I think that's exactly right. And Morgan, something you said that's really interesting, I wanted to pick up on, and that was the distinction in, in Harold's Liberty or Death and, and 1777 mm-hmm. designs. 
in terms of how much simplification and, and um, compression there is of the engagements, where in 1777 you probably are going to fight every meaningful um, engagement in that game, whereas liberty or death, mm-hmm. really, you're you're just you're just um, fighting a, 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 a subset of the you know the really major ones, or that one big battle that happens to happen in Pennsylvania might actually represent, you know, Brandywine and Germantown, right? And exactly. together, exactly. yeah, yeah. So and why and why Harold did that? So Harold, I'm going to tell you why you did that, and then you can tell me if I'm, you know, falsely asserting your <laughs> your design. You. But I think a part of this has to do with this this issue of of not just consequences, but in a larger case, not just scale, operational versus strategic, but scope. What are you putting in and what are you leaving out in terms of the sim? What are you trying to show? And in 1777, um, arguably, there are aspects of politics and economics in there. However, the focus is very, very tight in on the military operations, you know, the issues of the, the, the movement of the armies, uh, 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 the s- supply, conquering forts, and that kind of thing. In Liberty or Death, that stuff is in there, but you're, you're including also explicitly at the core of the model political aspects of the Revolutionary War, um, diplomatic aspects, economic aspects, and so forth. And so then if we're going to have a an accessible game, a, a play experience that is not too burdensome, that difference in focus of the two is going to mean there's license then in 1777 if you're going to focus in on military operations and battles, you're going to 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 allow the game to give you pretty much all the battles and all the sieges. Um, whereas that would be a misstep in the design of liberty or death because you would just be um, taking away from the time of examining those other not explicitly military aspects of the war. Did I get it right, Harold? <laughs> well, I accept that explanation and uh, we'll adopt it. The <laughs> and Volco next game I design you're going to write the designer's notes. I uh, right. appreciate that. Very thoughtful. Let, let me let me go to another question about the evolution of the coin series, and and I I, uh, I anticipate your response, but I'm not going to give it to you. The the and it relates to the deterministic uh, method used in resolving combat, Volco, in the early games, um, and then when we went to uh, to to uh, historical periods, we started I- increasing the 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 the, rant, the volatility of outcomes. I guess. Yes, you did. So 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 <laughs> help help me help me think through uh, the differences sure. there. Sure. So uh, and and so when you say the early games, just just for the listeners, the first four volumes of the coin series are all set. In the 20th century or later, and then Volume Five: Liberty or Death goes to pre-industrial warfare, and then um, falling, falling, skipping a few other titles, but Falling Sky and Pendragon, which we've been talking about here, are obviously much earlier than industrial warfare. So that's the first thing to to, to answer the question that that listeners need to know. So we're talking about why is it that in the 20th century, 21st century titles, we have deterministic combat, no die rolls, just X number of cubes, kills X number of gorillas, that kind of thing. And for the pre-industrial later volumes, we have some die rolling, potentially very important die rolling to help resolve, you know, what is the outcome of battle and who does how well. And so that comes for me, that comes from the fact that pre-industrial warfare included attritional warfare. There was the Kleinkrieg, you know, Petit Guerre, of little um, uh, raids and scouting actions and uh, skirmishes and the like. But major wars, by and large, uh, revolved around the assembly of large forces, armies, the maneuver of those armies and frequently, ultimately, the clash of those armies in decisive actions, what historian Russell Wigley calls the age of battles. Okay, so you have you have a, 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 a lot of decisions leading up to, but you're leading up to 
relatively short period of time, maybe just an afternoon, in which lots of um, big uncertain variables <laughs> are going to determine the outcome of this clash between the armies and therefore, and with big consequences, probably for the further conduct of the war. So that's the age of battles uh, situation. Then you get industrial warfare and that changes somewhat because you, you, the massing of these armies becomes so titanic that you're filling up the maneuver space between the sea and the, the mountains as in, as in World War I or World War II. We almost have that already in the American Civil War if you think about the last year of the war and the situation around Petersburg. And so now um, it's, it's, it's not even so much of the, the, it's this different kind of system for the maneuver of armies, but you still have decisive clashes. It's just, um, it's just a little bit more of a grind one after, one after another of these big clashes to determine the movement of the front, if you will. The coin series, especially with the first four volumes, tried to get at what comes after that. And that's the, the Mao, Che Guevara, modern insurgency style of guerrilla warfare in which one of the two combatants is so weak that they can't fill the line. In fact, they can't even really make armies. They're starting out with almost nothing, but they want to take military advantage action to pursue their objectives. So guerrilla warfare means you're doing lots of little hit and run attacks typically. It's it's attrition and the, the Kleinkrieg is the is the heart of your your military strategy for a time. Eventually you'd like to get to large armies that can take on the government. But what you're doing initially is you're just trying to work militarily, economically, politically with a, an accumulation of many, many, many small actions. So now we're back to compression. To show that in an interesting way, those dynamics, of course, we're not going to have coin players fighting every little guerrilla action. Instead, we're going to have them fighting out what is in effect the statistical um, likelihood of, of the results of those little actions. So one, you know, one ambush in Vietnam, what are the casualties going to be for the Viet Cong or for the U.S.? Who knows? I mean, there's so many variables. But if we have 300 engagements between U.S. ground forces and Viet Cong over the course of a year uh, in a given zone, statistically, you could you could have almost forecast what the attrition was going to be like, right? The attrition curves are, are going to be fairly smooth. And that's the premise of deterministic combat in the guerrilla warfare, modern guerrilla warfare corn series combat system that you're not simulating what happens to this one squad as it goes out and looks for guerrillas. You're simulating months or or at least weeks of activity as counterinsurgent forces sweep in or guerrillas undertake a series, a long series of small attritional attacks. What does it add up to? And therefore, we can simplify it to a deterministic uh, relationship, especially when that outcome is only one of many, many inputs with consequences, not just for the military balance, but for the political situation in that province, for the resources expended, and so forth. Now, if we take that, if we go back to pre-industrial, we're going to do something like, like the American Revolution, you know, or Caesar and Gaul, where the maneuver of large massed armies, how they maneuvered against each other, and what happened on some potential decisive day as they clashed, right? To then say, okay, and we're not gonna take into account the extreme chance, these giant independent variables in a specific clash, well, that would be, that would be um, very unfulfilling because we really need the players to be grappling with the uncertainty. Do I accept this battle? Do I, go, do I pursue this force and attempt to, to bring it to battle because it could go very bad for me, and I'm not sure, right? That is that that has to be in the model. The way it does not have to be in the model, I contended in the early coin series, if we're saying, okay, well, which provinces do you want to sweep? You know, how often? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why I think all three of us um, felt the need to introduce some degree of uh, 
a random factor in all our games. I mean, even for if you, you know, by by war game standards, I mean, you look at uh, any of Falling Sky, Pendragon, or Liberty or Death, and the bats are still fairly deterministic if you think about that. There's not that many rolls, and um, I mean, just just focusing on Pendragon, which I know best, um, you got essentially for each battle one die roll, and that's only if you know, whether the barbarians evade or not, or ambush or not, depending on what decision they took initially, fight or flee. So everything else is deterministic. So, you know, it's a balance. I mean, I think we all felt we, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that, Morgan, as I was thinking about this ahead of this conversation, because I think that is really appropriate to the fact that that, as we talked about already, battles in Pendragon aren't necessarily a single day's engagement, but a series. After all, we're covering many, many years with every campaign in Pendragon. The interesting, um, what what got my attention right away when you and I sat down uh, in California and played your your prototype was that the raids have so much dice rolling. And I think that's a really interesting, why did you do that? Well, my... Again, I wanted to, and a lot of that was initially just gut feel, I guess, and then it was fine-tuned over over play, but that actually, I don't think, changed much over the length of the design and development. Nope. <clears throat> but, yeah, I my feeling was that, I mean, if you compare the battle and the raid, on the one hand, um, a little bit like the modern coins games, my feeling was that if you take the professional or, or you know, the inheritors, um, you know, the Duke's troops or the Kiritates troops, if they were to face barbarians in open battle, they were going to win most of the time because they were superior. Um, so that's why it all boils down to one factor of randomness. On the other hand, there were so many dimensions playing into a red, and again, we should not think when you roll for three or four reds that this is three or four reds, just like your ambushes and whatever. I mean, we're talking of a multitude of yes. uh, little pinpricks red over a long period of time. But but the key factor are, you know, it, it, there's so much self-interest. I mean, are individual warriors going to be interested in boarding this ship and following that guy who they may know or not know, who may have a reputation or not, etc., and go and risk everything over the North Sea or whatever the Irish Sea, and then go up a river and try to, you know, it's it. There's so many uh, random factors that I felt this had to be fairly, um, yeah, fairly random. At the same time, I wanted to, and that was the design choice from the. Oh, we lost someone. No, uh, I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. So. I wanted to build into this system, I mean, a, a level of um, risk and risk management uh, for the barbarian player in that, you know, am I going to sort of focus on a few big raids, try to have more small raids? And, you know, so I, I wanted that to be extremely risky. So hence the high level of randomness. Um, I felt that something where the barbarian players would have a very precise and, and very controlled way of saying, you know, if I invest that much renown resources, I will get, I can expect that sort of return in a fairly certain way, just felt wrong. <laughs> I can't say yeah. better at this and point. I mean, I it just felt wrong. And when, when we playtested it, uh, it stayed that way for a long time. It did, it did. And see, and I, I find that fascinating because it's, that you said in, in the beginning and then the end that essentially it was a gut choice. It just seemed to be the, the right thing. And then when you think about it later, what it, what you're doing is you are reaching into your model of what happens on a raid, right? So what I would have thought of, not knowing much about it, is well, on a raid, you've got the ships and the ships land and the guys go out and maybe they meet resistance, maybe they don't, maybe the area is richer, maybe it's not as rich, they find mm-hmm. some stuff, maybe they get back to their ships in time, maybe not. Yeah. I wasn't even con- I wouldn't have even considered off the bat just coming to the the topic fresh that this big variable is how many um, people do you get to come with you on the raid in the first place, right? And so this whole system of well, you venture some renown of your leader, then you roll the dice and see how many r- arrive with you. And it makes complete sense and it illuminates an aspect then of how, that system worked, how these raids, you know, succeeded or, or failed. Uh, 
and is a lot of fun to play. And it, that struck me right, you know, right that first day playing the game. And we didn't ever change it. Right. And that, that's a very important decision because that has a burden because we end up spending all time then counting up rolling dice and so forth. Yeah. And, I, you know, you could have been done in a simpler way, but it conveys um, such a meaningful aspect of the rating process, which is so important to the chipping away of the Roman system in Britain, that it was, yeah. I think it was absolutely brilliant choice. And I think in order maybe to um, to um, diminish yet more my my reputation as a designer, but I mean, part of that comes from reading the history books, but also a large part comes from reading or watching fiction. The, the feeling I got from reading various novels or watching various um, uh, TV things was that it was so much dependent on the charisma and the luck of individual leaders that, yeah, that, that aspect sort of um, came very early in the design and, and came right there. I mean, I wanted to represent and again it's it's the same thing with your you know salamis battle or individual battles it represents with what happens with with one crew or maybe one small flotilla what happens generally in that you know do you have someone who's going to be able to get that many people and there are all the factors in there like um, what happens back home? Maybe there's a big uh, drought and, and people are desperate to get something and they will get on your ships, no matter the odds. Or maybe there's, uh, you know, some major fighting taking place locally or whatever and guys are just not available and you just can't control that. Um, and that's what I was, feel, you know, I wanted to, to capture. So anyway, but the, back to... Um, I think how we present randomness, and this is probably where we get some variation, because um, I think we all agreed that we needed some element of randomness, and then we all came up with our own solution. Um, and I don't think there's any good or bad solution, because first, it's usually based on you know the period and some specific factors to what we're trying to represent. And then there are some personal biases, and I think that's... Uh, that's entirely okay. Um, I mean, I cannot help but notice that uh, in Falling Sky or in Nevsky, when you roll, it tends to be the defender which does rolls. Whereas in Pendragon or in Fubris, it tends to be the um, attacking force which makes rolls. Um, I mean, there might be some specific aspects and I could explain at length why I'm choosing to have more the attacker rolling or more the defender. But I think at the end of the day, there's a simply element of personal preference, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, as long as we, at the end of the day, we introduce the right degree of randomness, and um, you know, it gives uh, we get the right pace and the right feel. Who cares? It's an interesting point. The application of randomness. We talk about it sometimes as if it's binary, but it's not. Right? It's it, there's a wide range of outcomes. From mm -hmm. deterministic to wildly, uh, wildly random, and and um, I, I have a wonderful defense for the bucket of dice concept, but I'm not going to talk about that because it's it's a very emotional topic and <laughs> and, and would create a distraction for what we're talking about here. Because uh, I used that in 1777, but in Liberty or Death, you know, I I guess similar to your m modeling, Morgan, I you roll for what damage the attacker and defender do to each other and there's no save roll. Um, and so, so there is a, there is a curiosity again about, you know, why do you choose roll for the attacker versus roll for the defender? Um, and, and, um, and, and is it, does it, uh, Volko, I think previously you said it, it depends perhaps on the time period involved, um, as a matter of perspective, then again, I you know I'm not arguing that one's right or wrong. I, yeah, and I could venture something here. I don't, I think I agree with. I think we're all in agreement that it mechanically makes, at the end of the day, not much difference who's throwing the die. But there is a, um, again, a suspension of disbelief, a transporting, a feeling kind of difference. And so one thing I would point to, but this is only my, this is only from me impressionistically as I look back on my own choices and as I experience, uh, for example, liberty or death. So I don't know how um, 
you know, I don't know how uh, uh, comprehensive this is going to be, but here's the here's a distinction. So in Wilderness War and in Liberty or Death, isn't this right, Harold, in Liberty or Death, you're rolling some dice to determine a number of hits, right? And both sides roll them in the battle and you're trying to roll high. You're trying to roll, you know, you get a certain number of dice depending on how many troops you have there and various other factors. And then each die rolls a one, two or three and you're adding up hits for losses to the other side, and then then you win by creating more losses, right? Yes. And and if you look at the combat results table, the, the combat system for Wilderness War, it's somewhat similar to that. You have, you're on a table, but you're each rolling a die, you're trying to roll as high as possible, and the amount of hits you create off of your die roll will depend from that combat results table on how many troops you have there, plus a few other factors. And, it's the attacker, in other words, it's the attacker's rolling a die against the defender. You're both rolling dice to hurt the other one. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, just feels like shooting artillery and maybe musketry. That, you know, a big variable is how well does the artillery shoot, how well is it sighted, and so forth. Um, and so it gives me that feeling, okay, <laughs> of here go my guns, boom, oh, they shot well, I just killed a bunch of your guys, Okay. <laughs> Now, the feeling I was going for in Levin campaign series in Nevsky is, is if it's shooting, it's hitting armor. And is it, you know, glancing off the armor or is it punching through and hurting you? And if it's, if it's coming to melee and coming to blows, you know, is my, are my, am I evading if I'm using evade on horse or am I, is my armor Again, tough enough to to and and my horse is stout enough and my men stout enough to absorb your blows. So, but in both of those cases, now I've zeroed in on a particular aspect of how we imagine these battles in those times. That whether I'm rolling the dice to hurt you or I'm rolling the dice to save my own guys, um, I get a a connotation, right? A a, a feeling of either, you know, how well did I shoot stuff at you, which to me is more like black powder, and compared to how well did my armor prevent your blow from hurting me. But, but then, yeah, I see your point, and but I, I could make the exact contrary argument. So that's why I'm saying it's a, I think it's a personal perception and, and preferences. I mean, in Hubris, same thing. I mean, you've got units facing each other and they roll. Each unit rolls a die to see whether they hit or not, and this is, and whether the hit is based basically on their quality and the um, battle rating of their commander, right? And and it's a roll by the attacker. Um, my assumption here is that at the time the opposing armies use very similar equipment, where all of the high training. Actually, my model just does not take into account the. I mean, some of the battles had tens of thousands of fluff. Right, they are not in my battle, they don't count. So I only model the actual regular or elite units which had staying power. So I consider that these staying power are essentially similar. There are no field work, there are no you know things which change that. So they are so I put the onus on whether the attacker was charging into a wall of spares and whether the commander will be able to sort of see the opportunity and maybe shift slightly, you know, the direction or whatever to take advantage. So um, the rule represents whether the attacker blinks and whether their commander is actually smart enough to adjust and to, you know, push where it hurts. And so it's, you know, I don't see any, there's no black powder or anything. There's very little missiles, actually, <laughs> in the Hellenistic worlds. So um, you can take a completely different different take and, and decide yeah, so to go with an attack, you know, offense yeah, you, rather than defense roles. Uh, which brings me to a question. Volko, when you... I suppose you played sports, uh, team sports at some point. Were you playing offense or defense squad? So I know we did. I played soccer and I played defense. Ha <laughs> ha. Okay, so it says nothing, but I always played offense in every team sport I played. So <laughs> and I wonder if it might not be something as simple as that. <laughs> well, it's not as simple as that, but that could be in there. It's deep because these models we're reaching for are deep in and we're drawing analogies to our own experiences, right? right. A- absolutely, absolutely. So I don't discount it at all. 
Um, but I, I will say that that that's you know you've chosen. It, it, I agree with everything you said. You've chosen to focus on. Well, did the attacker find an opportunity? Mm-hmm. When I think about you know spear walls in ancient times, and you know it's like the push of pike. You know which side breaks first and runs away. That's the loser. Right. And so I might have myself focused in on well, which side. Whose morale holds, you know, whose strength holds in holding the shield wall together. But it doesn't, again, it doesn't matter in terms of the validity of the model. Um, and, and so, and you were, didn't have to deal with, you, you chose not to because it didn't, didn't have enough impact on consequences to think about different armor classes at the scale of, I mean, your, your map covers the Eastern Mediterranean after all. It, it's, 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 it's large. In, in Nevsky um, and in Almoravid and subsequent, I've got essentially something like it adds up to about five different classes of of protection for units for armor. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I want to get at that directly um, by having that those classes expressed in a die roll range. And right. so that because works very because well. you because you feel it's significant to your model. Absolutely, it's it right. is it is yeah mm-hmm. exactly yeah. Yeah, whereas, uh, I mean, if you look at the big Hellenistic battles, uh, um, as I said, the armies were very similar in terms of training and, um, and equipment. Yeah. Uh, you, might say, you might say the Seleucids maybe had an edge in training, but, but at the end of the day, it depends on um, the respective uh, qualities of the commanders and, and blind luck sometimes. So yeah. and and so it's no and it's no coincidence in Levian campaign series that I'm favoring conflicts that were at cultural boundaries because mm-hmm. I'm interested in the different fighting styles, the different styles of mobilizing the armies, right? Yes. And the, and the different tactical nature of the units as well. Yes. One might have a larger number of light units, and one might have a small number of knights, and I want to have that play out somehow in the combat system of Levian campaign. On, on, an, on the topic of another game, Volko, you once gave me advice that um, if you're going to create granularity and detail across different unit types or different components of the game, it has to make a difference in the game or it's just different colored pieces, right? Right. And, and so, so, so clearly... In Nevsky, that's so important. The, the the different types of troops that you can levy is so yeah. important, right? And the timeliness and the cost. And, yeah. and because that's so important, then of course you go to a system where where either their attack or their defense, or maybe both, um, has a tremendous impact on combat. Yes, and in and in uncertain ways, uh, and uh, which is why the die rolls. I mean, the combat system is more or less buckets of dice uh, combat system in Levin campaign series, and so because that makes the the commander's decision more interesting and and realistic, the player's decision in the role of the commander. If you have a choice between levying a larger number of lighter units, less well armed and armored units, or a smaller number of well armed, trained, and armored units, which you're going to go for. Um, how many? And these sorts of, it's, there's, I'm trying to go for, well, there's not necessarily a right answer. It depends on circumstances and your your tastes. In Nevsky, if you have Alexander and Andre, you know, the princes from the east, and they can bring in some... Um, some archers? Yeah, mounted ar- archers who are fighting in the... In the um, tactics of step warriors where they're very effective at firing and evading and you can have a larger number of those um, or a smaller number of armored um, foot troops which do you go for because you're often faced with that that choice maybe you can have all of them but maybe you don't have time to muster all of them and so now you have a choice and that also gives you the opportunity then to experiment. Maybe one game you go with one and see how that goes, and another game if you go with another, and then it has to feel different. You know, if you get there and you get to the battle finally at some point in the game, and the the combat system does not differentiate between those two types and how they respond to enemy strikes, it's going to be disappointing. Mm. It's interesting to hear you characterize that as a bucket of dice, by the way, because I don't think that's the case. 
Yeah, I guess what I, what I say in, in terms of your, you, you get a certain number of strikes, each strike is a die roll. I'm simplifying it down now and taking out the fact that, yes, it's the defender rolling the dice and there are other ifs, ands, or buts. But you might generate in a, you might generate with a given strike a pretty large number of dice. It might be you're rolling 10 dice, in effect. That can come up like a bucket of dice. And instead of it being, well, each die hits on a five or six, which you might know from a standard bucket of dice, instead it's each die penetrates on a four, five, or six. Right. If it's against knights, it is a five or six. So again, even though the defender is the one assigning the hits and rolling the dice, mechanically, functionally, it's very much like. It's not exactly like, but it's very much like buckets of dice. Well, I I I, I continue to argue that 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 it isn't, and I, I will tell you that that emotionally, my 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 view when I play a game like Napoleonic Wars and and seventeen seventy seven, which are that have that sort of resolution. Yeah. Um, that, that um, you know, from, from my perspective, it's a beautiful bell curve that's created that's scalable for the combat. And there's a thousand reasons as to why it's a beautiful thing. But because we roll so many dice in those games, people right. scream randomness, right? Random does not equal the number of dice. That's not correct, but it doesn't matter. No, emotionally, that's total. <laughs> emotionally, that's what people think. But in, in Nevsky Volko, yeah. when, when I'm defending... And I select my armored units. Yeah, I'm I'm praying for a little bit of luck for each of those dice. Sure. Right. So so let's I'm, say I'm just, I put ten I put ten hits on you. Yes. You're yes, going to be rolling ten dice. You can choose the order. It's like there's a little more granularity there, in that you're not going to roll them all at the same time. And yes, you have in effect a decision with each of those ten dice, and you're choosing the order. But at the end of the battle, at the end of that strike, even just that one strike, you will have rolled all ten dice against a range that's either a hit or a miss. It feels different. <laughs> it feels different, perhaps, but the bell curve is in there. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree, and I I like it. I I you know I'm I'm a fan of all these systems. I hope nothing I say is taken as a critique um, or criticism, but. You know, it's it, it, but but I I feel very closely associated with the unit that's rolling the dice when I play Nevsky, um, which which is uh, you know, part of the problem. Because you have that option of of and it it is your you know decision. It's not a lot of tactical control in the battle, but you do have that option of you know, am I going to try to have my tougher units absorb these blows, but then I'm putting my tougher units at risk. And I think that's why you end up identifying with them because you're really hoping they're going to hold out. So that the rest of your rabble doesn't have to take that punishment and then can can actually deliver its own blows subsequently. As as El Cid rides out on his horse while he after his death, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That that may be a good place for us to stop. I, I appreciate the two of you being available to talk about this and what a treat for me and and I'm sure people will be very excited about listening to this and hearing your perspectives. We should do this more often. We should cut our games into pieces and, uh, and yeah, discuss no, the pieces. Yeah, no. An excuse is good to spend time with you, too. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it, it, it's a fun, it's a little bit uh, uh, pleasure of nostalgia for me and kind of going back and, okay, at the time I did that, it was, you know, as you were saying, Morgan, that was kind of what felt right. But there must have been some rationale to it. You know, what was it? <laughs> Let's <laughs> come up with something. Well, the other thing about nostalgia for game designers is that you can also view it through the prism of the people that play the game. And, and I very much, very much enjoy that. I think it's such a treat to have people play the game and then come back and ask, why did you do this? Uh, I think this is good. I think this is bad. As long as, as, long as they're polite, I love that sort of feedback. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's it's also essential because you you know and I think we've discussed that one on one or together a number of times. It's so easy to fall in love with your own design. So you do something and there's everything you ever wanted to factor in and and since you are so intimately familiar and comfortable with it, when you test it, it rolls very quickly and it's great and it's awesome. And then you go to new players and you have them play. And sometimes it just clicks and that's perfect. And sometimes you see them struggling or you see them not grasping what seems obvious to you because you're just so intimately familiar with the subject. I mean, it's, uh, 
it's a very useful thing. I mean, it's because it's very easy to get carried away and, and to just, uh, you know, just quit, you know, what you two were discussing about model. I mean, it's it's easy to lose focus and to, um, and to throw in great stuff, uh, which actually just gets lost because it just, um, or, or, or instead, you know, get something else lost. So, yeah. It's a, it's a, what you raise an important watchword to uh, designers out there. Don't fall in love too soon. Listen to your developed <laughs> testers. Yes. Yes. It's hard. It's hard, but listen to them. And then, you know, the other things I would add is be aware that, you know, you have your own biases, you have groupthink. Uh, you know, I think oh, amongst yes. war gamers, we have groupthink that, that hurts us. Uh, amongst us as coin designers and developers, we have a groupthink certainly around bots, which is subject for another conversation. <laughs> And then, oh, yes. um, and and how important it is to play games that aren't strictly defined war games or historical simulations. There's so many good ideas outside uh, the war game hobby in conflict games amongst uh, euros, for example. That uh, we just we have a lot to learn and a lot to find uh, that that we may be missing. Words of wisdom. So, uh, in closing, thanks thanks again, gang. Uh, thank you, Harold. Thank enjoy. you, Morgan. We'll thanks talk a lot. Again soon. Talk to you soon.